With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bounce from Culture Editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by the entertainment strategy guy. Now, the entertainment strategy guy, we, some call him Mr. Strategy Guy. Some call him the ESG. It, you know, it depends on what you what you want to go with here. Uh, but I'll, I'll, let, I'll leave that up to him. Um, I'm excited to have him on because he is the number one guy uh, for deep dives into uh, stats on what people are watching on streaming and kind of why that matters, which is obviously a very important topic for the world of entertainment uh, at this moment and will be going forward. Uh, you can find his work at The Ankler. You can find his work at his Substack, entertainment.substack.com, I think. Is that correct. is that yep. right? That's you correct. Got, yeah. You got entertainment.substack. I feel like that's a big one. I feel like that's, you know, getting Max.com 20 years ago and selling it to Warner Brothers for $20 million or whatever this, yeah, uh, when this, Substack, this month. When Substack was going in 2019, people are like, you have to have a newsletter and... I'd had a blog in a previous life a long time ago, and there really was no way to monetize it. So I hopped on the Substack thing. And when entertainment.substack was available, I was like, yes, that's good. I think people will search for that. So <laughs> that I was works. like, happy to have it. Yeah. That works. All right. Uh, so let's let's get started here. All right. Yep. So the again, the, the reason uh, I, w- I wanted to have you on here is to debunk a very common thing that you still hear as well. I mean, I still hear it, but I talk to, I talk to you know, common folks every day, but you're, you're talking to industry people and uh, you hear things like, well, there's no streaming data. There's no Nielsen ratings type thing. So how are we supposed to know what people are watching? But that's wrong, isn't it? Yeah. So I was actually, um, to, I'm sure we'll talk about the anonymity thing at the end or just leave it, you know, just le- leave it mysterious. But I was actually in a party in Christmas time and I'm so anonymous that even a lot of my friends do not know what I do. Because especially in Hollywood, if like two people know a secret, then the whole town knows it. So I've like tried to keep that, you know, on wrap. And at this party with the number of people who worked on number of streaming shows, ratings came up and people said like, yes, the the streamers know, but no one else knows what ratings are. And I was like, well, what about Nielsen regular reports? And one person was even like, they don't publish a a regular top 10 list, which is funny for me, obviously, because like that's what I analyze nearly every single week. So um, the point is we absolutely have streaming ratings now. I actually like to tell people that this started in 2020. I call it the uh, streaming ratings era and essentially everything else was, you know, before streaming ratings era um, because that was when streaming hit critical mass so that all the analytics companies could build panels of sizes that were large enough to actually be pretty confident that their results are statistically significant. And so Nielsen started publishing a top 10 list that year. Um, by the start of the next year, they started publishing three top 10 lists of what people are actually watching. A number of other companies are now joining them. Um, they range from like show labs by plum research companies like digital. Eye, Samba TV, a whole host of other ones that are actually too numerous to mention. And there are a ton of streaming ratings. I even have an article up on my website from last year when I launched the paywall, we have streaming ratings now. 
because we have this and it actually matters what people are actually watching. So uh, let's talk about why it matters, yep. because I, I think that's a you know, that's that's a argument. Again, I have with normal readers and, and viewers and that sort of uh, person all the time. They're like, well, why do why do I care what people are watching? And maybe you don't. There's no reason for you to care. But what does better uh, with the, for the companies with the companies matters because that's what we get. That's what we get more of in theory, right? Or is that not how it works? I mean, is it is it just important to know for the oncoming advertising boom that we're about to see in the streamers? Well, I think to start with the advertising boom, that is absolutely where Nielsen started their enterprise. It's sort of why it matters, why they exist was because at a raw level, they had to know that if Coca-Cola paid for a slot, they need to know how many people actually watch the slot to like properly pay NBC. So it was on both sides interest to have it align exactly how many people were watching it. That logic will come roaring back into the future. I can't see a world where it doesn't come back because if, um, you know, in the future where uh, people are selling advertising like Netflix with their big announced 5 million users watching it, whatever that means, it matters how many people they're selling to. So the ratings will absolutely come back from that standpoint. But the second reason it matters is because, like you said, um, while there's a lot of discussion about what people watch and how there's like, it seems like it's really complicated for what's why streamers renew shows or what works to drive at its basic level. Entertainment works the way it always is, which is things that are more popular drive all the other business metrics. So if you have something that people are watching a lot of the reason they are likely to stay subscribed to your streamer or they are going to join your streamer is to watch the things that are very popular. And that comes down to a basic dollar and cents is if you make more things that more people watch, you can make fewer other things that people don't watch and you're more likely to make money. So all the metrics that the streamer collects about viewership, how many unique households are watching it, how many, how long they're watching it for TV shows, how many episodes they watch in a row, all those things contribute to the customer's behavior. And at a basic level, all the streamers can tie those behaviors to the metrics like are they resubscribing are they new subscribers things like that um but you know the streamers only have that data for their own platforms they don't have it for other platforms and so that's also why these ratings matter for everyone is because that's how they get insights into the other streamers to see how competitive they are and then everything flows downhill from there so when talent is renegotiating deals if your show's more popular you should obviously get paid more because you're generating more value the streamer won't necessarily tell you exactly how well things are doing when shows are getting sold to other platforms they matter so basically if you want to know if shows you like or not from like a customer like from a very like i don't work in the industry perspective whether or not your shows are going to come back or based off how popular they are for everyone in the industry we're just returning to the era we were say 20 years ago or even say 10 years ago where ratings determined what got renewed what got canceled what got made what didn't well, and so what are what are the what are the companies actually looking for here? I mean, that's the big question to my mind. I, I and it, it I guess it depends on it depends on the actual streamer. It depends on the size of the streamer because it's hard to compare a hit on Netflix to a hit on Apple TV Plus right. um, or you know Paramount Plus. But what are what are they actually looking for? Is it completion rates? Is it you know just total numbers watched? What are what are we thinking? So it's a really complicated answer. In full disclosure. Um, 
I only worked at one streamer. I could get insights and feedback from what I hear from other things. Um, but I worked at one streamer, so I saw their perspective. So I can't speak for everyone. What I can speak for though, is two points I like to make about this. One is that the streamers, I think everyone wants it that the streamers have like sort of one golden number and they're like, ah, that's it. And that's what they look for. And at one point in time, like say to go back to the broadcast TV analogy, your rating during your time slot back in like the 1990s, that was the one number. You know, if it was really, really big, you kept getting renewed. If it was lower than all the competition, you probably didn't. Some other things went into it, but it was pretty simple. The problem with the problem, which is not really a problem, it's actually a good thing to have. The streamers have so much data that they can really have a, a really holistic look at everything. So usually one streamer is not looking at one thing is you can look at a couple key metrics and those are probably the biggest drivers. But, and here's my big caveat that I like to put out there into the world is that if you know, just say one number, which was viewership of a show, almost every metric that is out there in the world is highly correlated with that number. So, um, to bring up the example of a show like Wednesday, among the first seasons that Netflix debuted on their platform, no matter almost any metric they could choose to track, I would guess that Wednesday was the biggest in that metric. So when you say, hey, the number of show, the show that dr drove the most new users, I bet it was Wednesday because the, the, the viewership was just huge. The number of unique households, probably Wednesday. Completion rate, probably Wednesday rewatch probably Wednesday again, because when you, the, all those numbers are really correlated. And when you have hits that are outsized like that, they really tend to like drive that. But when it comes to renewals, the one other piece that really impacts all this is the cost because a show can be smaller, but if it's not as expensive, it justifies having lower viewership. So there is that multiple. And so basically when a streamer is looking whether or not they're going to renew or cancel, they're really looking at a range of variables that are all sort of derived from viewership. If I had to pick two for TV shows, um, completion rate and either say unique customers or total hours viewed, some combination between those two gives them an idea of how well this is doing compared to everything else. And then you balance that off the costs and determine whether it is getting a good ROI for you with two other like, caveats, which is that certain shows are made definitely to win awards and get critical acclaim. And if some shows have a big enough critical acclaim, even if they're not really that well watched, that can save them. And then internal politics always plays a role as well. And that some cr creatives just love a certain show. And even if it underperforms compared to say another show, if they just have a better relationship with the creators or they just personally like it, it gets renewed. So, yeah. So, so it's just like TV then and the, the old it's it's this is this, uh, how things have always been, except more more data. Yeah, I would. I'm uh, it's funny because on a lot of things when I write about strategy um, and I don't talk about my politics much, but I'm pretty moderate on a lot of things. But I tend to be kind of in a word conservative about these things. And I'm much more willing to say even in streaming, most things are the same than they are different from what they were before. And so. Yes, streaming, we're using different numbers. We're talking about unique households and completion rate and things like that. But at the end of the day, the question is, do we think this show is watched by enough people that it will drive them to renew their subscriptions or come into the system versus its cost? 
And for a few years, you know, when there was a streaming boom, some of those things got obscured, but that's still basically what's going on. Do you think that the streaming boom uh, was ever going to be sustainable? I mean, I, I, you know, we, we live through this era of peak TV and not just peak TV, like peak, peak TV, like an insane amount of television, so much television that no uh, reasonable nation could ever consume all of it in a, in a substantial or meaningful way. Um, it was, was that just, was that just a crazy zero interest rate money phenomenon or what, what, what was that? How could that continue? And if it doesn't continue, what does that actually mean for the industry writ large? So I do think it was a bubble and, but if it wasn't a bubble, the best way to describe it is that it really was two revenue streams competing at the same time that happened to both be going up, or at least one was going up very high faster than the other one was going down. So this is what I, I try and talk about streaming a lot is that since Netflix was always described properly as a disruptor, they're disrupting the linear TV bundle, but disruption fundamentally means the previous thing does not keep existing. That's why you're, you're, you know, bullying in, you know, from 2008 to say 2017, both like people had linear TV subscriptions and, you know, for a long time, more people had cable than had Netflix or the majority of Netflix subscribers phrase another way also had a cable subscription. So it really was accretive there, but you know, as cord cutting has continued, that is like going away at the same time, you had multiple entrants coming in at the exact same time, making a lot of shows for launch and streaming. I, I, one of the big contentions I have, I think we're seeing a lot of the data does not have as good of economics as the pay TV bundle of old. And a lot of that is because pay TV had a lot of local monopolies and that's very valuable having local monopolies. Like if you only have Comcast as your only cable option, they can charge quite a bit, you know, for this access to pay TV. So since streaming won't have as good of economics and it was growing right at the same time, the linear bundles decaying, one of those two things have to go. I think it's the biggest worry for Hollywood proper right now is that if you were making 600 English language TV shows that were scripted and that goes down 25, 50, a hundred, 125 shows, like I don't know where it ends up that has huge impacts for whether or not, you know, the total size of the industry, basically. I, one thing I think about a lot with regard to streaming, um, and, and the way spending on streaming works from, from the network side of things is why would any of these companies ever make movies when they can spend a similar amount of money for content that uh, eats up, you know, five times as much time. So instead of a two, why would you spend a hundred million dollars on a, a two hour movie when you could spend a hundred million dollars on probably three, eight to 10 hour TV shows? Right. Like, how does that make sense? The, when it comes to a lot of things that I hear in the streaming wars, there are a lot of like aphorisms or sayings that I don't think hold up to scrutiny in this case i think this one does hold up to scrutiny which is the idea that a tv show is great for retention so someone comes on 
they start watching, they're there for 10 weeks to watch the show. Even most binge shows on Netflix still take a week or two for people to finish, especially if they're 10 episodes. So the retention piece, I, I really think is real. So then the flip side of that was always that movies are what bring people in because they're bigger budget, they're higher profile. So those are attracting people to the service. But what you're keying in on is a hundred million dollar movie. Can it bring in as many people as a hundred million dollar TV show, especially if the marketing budgets are roughly the same? And I don't think they are. In my experience, the main way that those movies draw people in is because they are theatrical experiences and theatrical movies have always had fantastic second lives after theaters. Because as I heard you talking last week or a few weeks ago with like Scott Mendelson, um, essentially the theatrical run acts as a giant marketing campaign for the film. And that's what drives the value. So if your question is, could streaming films without out theatrical runs have those same impacts? That math doesn't actually really work for me. It's something I've been writing about on my website for a few, uh, I wrote at the beginning of the month. So let's, all right. Okay. I want, there, there are two separate things here. I want to key on, okay. uh, and I, I'm going to mention them both. So I don't forget we come back to them. First is a binge model versus week by week model. Okay. And second is theatrical versus straight to streaming. Um, so let's, let's do, uh, let's talk TV first and the binge versus week week to week yep. model. What do you see? One of one of my favorite little data insights from uh, reading you for the last, you know, couple of years here is the idea of the binge model curve. This you get a you get a you get a small a little a little bit of audience for the first week cuz usually a show or at least it was the case debuts on Netflix on a Friday. Right. Um and then the second week is a big week and then there's kind of a a steep slope down. Right. As people people wrap it up. Now obviously that's not the case for all all shows squid games for instance had a much larger uh a much longer curve it also had a whatever. tiny opening weekend it was funny and because it, like it, no one watched it the first weekend yeah right it, it actually built that was an actual genuine word of mouth hit which you don't get a lot of on netflix interestingly um but the but the uh but anyway what what do you see in terms of in terms of both total audiences and growing audiences and keeping people on the service which of these models works better from your from your perspective so from my perspective i'm definitely if you could say team weekly though when it comes to any business decision actually if i have an a team i'm team do strategy first and don't just copy what other people are doing which um sounds really cynical but in my experience and like observing the industry i think a lot of people <laughs> to be honest a lot of streamers are like netflix does binge we do binge and we're like well why it's like Netflix does binge, can't get fired for copying what the most successful person does. <laughs> Super cynical, but man, that happens a lot. Um, so I'm definitely team weekly because for me running the finance numbers of it, if you can have one show and it, and you're able to launch the show and for 10 to 12 weeks, it keeps someone coming back to your service week after week, then instead of having to have three shows coming out every single month, you can have it more spaced out. And that's just gonna make you more money in the long, that's gonna be a more efficient use of content spend. My tentative prediction of the industry is that we're gonna see more of those things going forward because cost consciousness is coming to a lot of the streamers. I will always put a caveat, which is that Netflix has done very well not doing this. And I can't argue too much against them because they do have the success metrics. 
But the one thing I will note is that a lot of the smaller streamers, especially the ones that started Binge, have started to go weekly, uh, Prime Video being the biggest one. They don't do it with every show, so it does show that they prioritize which ones they think will have extended runs. But they are releasing shows weekly where they think, or what I would call pseudo-weekly, you know, three episodes, three episodes, three episodes, and a finale, which I'm also okay with. I think it, like, builds it out. Again, while I think there's this narrative that everyone binges everything, actually a lot of people still watch one or two episodes a night because, like, say they have kids they can't watch for four hours. They're watching one or two hours after the kids go to bed. Um, would also add with Netflix, we're seeing more and more data that they are definitely breaking shows up into smaller and smaller pieces. We saw that with, um, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I should remember correctly. Ozark had two parts. We all saw the yeah. stranger things yep. last year had yep. three episodes that were like each, I think five hours long drop on like July <laughs> weekend. We're going to see that with the Witcher this year. Um, Netflix is also doing something which I think is very funny. And this is like how ratings impact the real world. They are now dropping shows very often over to earnings periods. So it's like, oh, you enjoyed this Witcher that started in June. We'll stay for July right when our earnings call and right when we're going to introduce password sharing. So you're seeing some of that. Do they break them up in even smaller? Tough to say. I would say the data on the binge versus weekly along with the strategic considerations is not as clear as the theatrical versus straight to streaming releases. But in my mind, I still think it supports weekly. Um, and I know I'm talking too long now. This is my first podcast, so I'm going to use that excuse. No, lot, this but, is great. But Love is Blind did the same thing where when Netflix releases reality shows, binge, and a lot of the other people, like Hulu has hit some examples, Peacock, like, why would you release a really reality competition show with no chance for the social media conversation to build up about what is doing it? And their most successful show by far, which is in my last streaming ratings report, which is public for all, you can see that Love is Blind did not have a binge release curve. It actually built its audience over the four weeks or five weeks leading into the live uh, reunion show. Uh, well, I mean, look, this is, uh, and again, we're, we're going to get to theaters here in, in a second. My hobby horse, I love to ride it. Uh, I think we're on the, the horse together. The, I know that sounds like <laughs> phrasing, but we're, we're both on that horse. Yeah. We're, 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 it's a, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Western. We're all, yeah. we're all on the horse together. Uh, but the, um, but with the, the, the weekly release model, I mean, the key, the key evidence to my mind that. Netflix is at least reconsidering partly how they do it is just the, as you mentioned, splitting these big shows up into two halves, which uh, essentially allows them to keep people through two or three discrete billing cycles um, is a is a huge sign that they are worried about churn, that they're worried about keeping people who uh, are are, you know, just hopping on for, you know, the the new season of Ozark or the new season of Stranger Things. Um, and it suggests to me a real weakness in the binge model. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's the case. I would also add, um, this might be my next big tarp topic after I finish what I call the future of film or the streaming versus theatrical debate. But there is also, I think, interestingly, a lot of, uh, there are, is survey data on the binge versus weekly question. And what I find funny is a lot of times it's basically 50, 50. So it's kind of a coin flip. And that some people, like half of people love being able to binge it right away. Half of people like weekly because, um, 
you know, there's definitely a thing now if a show drops and you're like, man, I have 10 episodes to watch of that versus say like, oh, hey, there's only one episode of Andor that's new. Okay, we can like we can keep control of that. So I think as a question, it's sort of split how people how customers actually feel about it. Um, But I definitely think that contributes to it. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll just say from my own perspective, look, I, you know, uh, I remember the first seasons of House of Cards and being very excited. We're going to watch this whole season in one weekend. It's, we're going to stay up till two in the morning watching four or five new episodes. And, you know, look, then I have kids and it's like, well, we can watch. It's going to take us a couple weeks here to get through the new season of Stranger Things because we can watch one of these 90 minute episodes a night. And that's uh, that's about it. And maybe like one every two nights. Frankly, yeah. it's not not necessary. All right. So the, the big question then. Yep. Uh, in terms of strategy right now is theaters versus straight to streaming. And you had a big, you had a big piece, you've got a big piece up on your site, breaking down um, a bunch of different ways of looking at this. But the, uh, the top line uh, data, the top line conclusion from the data, I should say, is that on the main with a big release, you are better off putting it in theaters first and then on streaming, right? That's that is the conclusion. Although, um, because like I'm a data guy, and I'm always trying to do the thing where I like don't overhype the conclusion, like be very specific about the data I pulled. the The main question I looked at is: is viewership larger if it goes straight to streaming or to theaters first? And then I tried to account for as many variables as possible. And the basic conclusion is that the viewership is higher if it goes to theaters first for a variety of reasons than if it goes straight to streaming. I tested this uh, primarily talking about movies that came out in 2022, um, but also looked at some past years as well. I separated it out by streamers. I tried to separate it out by genres. And overall, for the most part, there were examples where if you, you know, I forget off the top of my head, but there were definitely some examples of certain genres where it's like, oh, hey, look, it wasn't actually like the straight to streaming films outperformed, but usually the sample size was small. Um, so I looked at the viewership. Now, the other assumption I go into this with, and some people have disagreed with me, but a lot of the super streaming bowl cases, you know, for the people who are super pro streaming, that it's going to be this fantastic new business model have not borne out. One of the things I really try and clarify is if you believe that a film on streaming have, has some sort of intrinsic value to it. So customers know that it's only on Netflix and it's only streaming. So perhaps they value watching it, you know, more because they know it had never been on in theaters first. I don't, I don't think that actually bears out in real life because again, in my mind, viewership is viewership. So if more people watch something, they tend to value it the same they don't have some implicit value to it. And so if viewership is greater, if it goes to theaters, and if those films going to theaters happen to make several hundred million dollars above what their P&A spend was, then it just makes more sense to do that because you make more money. Um, and there's also a lot of financial implications that I could try and describe that go into that on top of it. And I'm gonna keep writing about on my website and have written about honestly for like five years now. Yeah, well, I, you know, th- this is so, there, there are two ways of looking at this from my mind. The first is, okay, what is what is causing the bump um, 
And they, they both have to do with the same basic question here is what is causing this bump in viewership? Okay. Right. So the, the first uh, idea is if you put a movie in theaters, you spend a lot of money advertising it and people recognize the thing uh, that they've seen ads for either, you know, on TV or trailers in front of other movies or whatever. And they're like, okay, this is a thing I want to see. I might not want to see it in theaters, but when it, when it hits Disney plus, I will gladly watch, you know, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp right. quantum mania. Okay. Right. Um, and and the, the second the second way to look at this is putting a movie in theaters is a signal of quality to audiences. It's it's a way for audiences because we, we are all flooded with content all the time. We are we are we have to rely on our own mental heuristics to decide what is it worth me sitting down and trying to spend two hours to watch tonight. And um, a thing that I know from the world of from the world of VOD uh, or straight to DVD movies is the there was a strategy that a lot of uh, smaller film companies used to essentially four wall a movie um, in in theater, which is which means uh, for folks who don't know, uh, which means uh, they would pay the theaters to to play the movie. When they did this, they can then advertise it uh, in the uh, Direct TV or you know Comcast VOD whatever. Uh, now in theaters, right? Box, yeah. Uh, when when people were trying to make uh, uh, pay per view purchases, and that always led to more uh, more purchases and a higher dollar amount being able to be put on those purchases. So I'm I'm curious from if you have any sense from the data which of these two factors makes more sense: just the advertising, the mental heuristics, or probably a combination of both. I would assume. I do not, but I would actually take the second one and do a, a quick twist. First, I actually think most of it is the marketing. I think that is really one of the big drivers here. I know, uh, again, you guys talked with about the air example. Like, can you essentially pay for the P&A on a movie and, and develop an extra awareness? And I'm actually really excited in four weeks when we get the Nielsen data and the Show Labs data for me to actually dig into the NTV Times data. Um, to dig into it and see how well it did and see if it, you know, supports this thesis that I made with that. So I think a huge amount of it is the marketing campaign. I would say that's also particularly big for kids films. Um, and that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about kids films and they say like, Oh, you make a kid's movie so you can sell all the merchandise. Well, right now this year, the film that will win the kids merchandise battle is Mario. It's Mario. It's Mario. Mario. We'll see if anything else can dethrone it, but it's going to be Mario. And that's tied to it's doing very well at the box office, but also it was advertised everywhere. So they like go hand in hand. Okay. So what I would also say about the it being in theaters, having a quality issue, I definitely think that was a factor back in the day. Um, I'm not as sure it's as big of a factor now, though I think it's still there. But what I would say is that the type of films that you know, thrive in theaters, which are often bemoaned, giant franchise blockbusters, either superhero, science fiction, or anim kids animation, which I think gets kind of neglected in there. The other thing that ties all of them together is they are very expensive to make. And that fact does not change. And so one of the things is that if, say, the theaters as dead crowd was correct and theaters were on their way to oblivion in two years, my main prediction is that the 200 300 400 million dollar films would just not would cease to exist because you know we've even had rumors out of you know netflix this happened what three years ago 
that films that were some of their most viewed could not support budgets above $100 million. So I don't know if there's an intrinsic quality or if customers know, and I think you can tell in a lot of the animation that the animation of Super Mario Brothers in a lot of cases looks better than a lot of the other kids' films that are on Netflix because it costs more. And theatrical, along with a you know home entertainment window, allows you to recoup more of those costs before they then go to streaming and other windows. Yeah, I mean, this is the other big strategy question about streaming that has never has never... It, it's a thing that drives me a little bit crazy because I look at streaming and I see a way for the studios to recoup money that they lost when DVD went away mm-hmm. like that. And instead, everybody uh, at the studios looked at streaming as a way to be the next Netflix. Correct. And like there's only one Netflix. Netflix has a lot of advantages, has a lot of first mover things, whatever. Um, the idea that Warner Brothers Discovery could be, you know, generating $18 billion a year off of HBO Max or Max or whatever they're calling it today is strikes me as insane. Right. Uh, I absolutely. Um, I think that's also how streaming started was um, I have a chart in my streaming versus theatrical films. I've used this chart multiple times uh, where I basically, you know, when I, I have an ex- explaining article that's free for everyone out there on how future, how films are financed. And it basically shows all the windows and you have all the windows in one stacked bar chart. So imagine like 30% is like, you know, domestic box office. Another chunk is international than home entertainment. And I'm using, making hand gestures. I realize no one can see except for Sonny. No. <laughs> um, but then I have two lines that go to streaming. And that was, ba- and with a tiny little sliver for merchandise. And that was basically what you're describing is what people's pitch was is we take all these successful windows and we move them into one and we assume that one window will be bigger than all the other ones. But not only that, cause I would actually go a step further. They also wanted to do that with TV at the same time. So this one window that's supposed to replace all the film window is also going to replace all the TV win- revenue at the same time. But unlike the cable bundle of old where people are locked into long-term contracts, uh, you know, you can drop a streamer at any time. You know, there's multiple other streamers. They're all like cheaper. You can share it with multiple people. I would never do that, but hypothetically, you know, like half the streamers I use, I'm sharing with someone else, you know? Um, So all that means that like, not only is streaming in this one version going to replace all the other revenue streams, it's also not going to make as much as the other revenue streams did, except for maybe globally, if like Netflix, you can be first mover in a ton of territories around the globe. So yes drives me bananas uh all right uh let's see one thing one thing you write about a lot and i i it's it's a thing that i'm i love because it it, um confirms one of my biases i love to have my biases confirmed that's that's really what i'm looking for whenever i read anything i'm like does this prove me right but one thing I one thing one thing that you you've you've banged on about quite a bit is that foreign uh foreign films and TV shows yep. do not perform in the United States. They just uh, on Netflix and let's let's right. isolate this to Netflix. Foreign films um, and TV shows generally speaking do not perform in the United States to the level that domestic product does. It, it, it does okay in the rest of the world, but in the United States in the biggest Netflix market these are more often misses than hits. Yep. So is that right? Yes. Um mostly right. I would I do two things because um, I would actually first 
to go against the American exceptionalism piece, I think most countries this applies to. And it's not that other countries around the world essentially don't want, want if, if they have their preference, they would watch shows featuring people from their own country making jokes that are about their own country or things that they would expand. So most people's preferences are local content in the first place if they can support it. But then second to that, they're willing to watch things from a similar region. So the example I am seeing in the data, which I think streaming did evolve, because I always like to clarify what is new, what is different, is that pre say 2010, very few British shows actually succeeded well in the US, right? We didn't all watch The Office, we watched the Office US version, right? There were some on PBS, but until Downton Abbey, they weren't really like huge massive hits. I think streaming has shown that if people are speaking English, it's much easier for that to break through in America. So you get hits from Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, places like that, and they tend to do well. But the further you get from similar languages, similar regions, shows don't perform as well. So, you know, a lot of shows that do well, you know, and I don't dive super deep in the data, but I have seen, um, I've seen some data on this, like South Korean and Japanese shows tend to do well in each other's countries. They're similar enough culturally, not the same by any means. So I want to pin it with that brush, but it's closer. Same with Latin American dramas can do well across like the Latin American countries because they're speaking Spanish, similar enough cultures. But to tie this back to the American piece, um, there in the early days of streaming, there was definitely the assumption that we could, that the streamers could go out. And I saw this both from competitors and internally, we could go make a show in Germany or Japan and bring it to America and a ton of Americans would watch it. And it just is not the case. Um, squid game was unique in that it's the so far only real squid game we've had. It, and by that, I mean a show that was globally popular in every country that Netflix touched and squid game was unique. And I have this little gif I've been using now days since last squid game. And we're now like, it seems crazy to say this, but is it, uh, we're on a year and a half since last squid game. Cause it was squid game was 2021. So we're still waiting for the next squid game. There have been shows that have been popular almost globally, except in the U S um, Lupin is an example on Netflix. So is money heist money heist just basically never got super popular. It definitely had some viewership and made the top 10 list a few times towards the end, but it was never a number one show that's like driving these ratings. And I think it's because, you know, ideally if people can, they watch content in their own countries and then they watch giant shows from the rest of the world. But those shows have to be supported by a market that's big enough to really make, you know, again, giant blockbusters that can travel globally. Yeah. I mean, and the other, I, you know, there's a, there's a, a cinematic component to this as well, which is that South Korean cinema is probably, if you were looking at foreign cinema in the United States that plays in theaters and people watch, right. I would say South Korean cinema is, is probably, you know, the best example of that. Right. And, and I think, you know, there's always been um, one idea I'm playing with is the idea that every film market is basically about the size of the country it supports. So it's probably more tied to GDP. So we haven't seen until RRR last year, there weren't a lot of Bollywood breakthroughs, but we might see more of those as they ramp up GDP wise. But South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, I would all point to as examples where they did all have films that could break through, um, especially like their action films, uh, actually based off one of your podcast recommendations. I just read the, uh, 
the John Wick oral history book. Um, and they have a whole history of action films in there. So there are always these films that can break through. They can like, you know, have their niche audiences, but very rarely are they truly like global sensations on the level of, you know, especially on the top, you know, 20 global films worldwide. They just don't tend to travel that well. One, one thing I was kind of surprised by, uh, recently, and I think it was in your, I think it was in your big piece about the uh, benefit of putting movies in theaters, Mm -hmm. um, was that RRR did not do as well as I kind of assumed it had on Netflix. Yep. Um, it was a, it's a movie that like lots of people, it's Indian blockbuster, uh, won an Oscar um, at the Academy Awards for best song. Uh, I believe best song. And, um, and you know, I, I saw lots and lots of people talking about it, but was not actually well watched just in terms of number of hours, which again, kind of surprising because it's a three hour movie. You would think, Okay, lots of lots of hours there to watch, but did not do as well as people might have thought. And my my question here is, if you it does does helping to understand the numbers, uh, should helping should understanding the numbers change our perception of what the conversation should look like? Because I do think there is a, a certainly amongst you know critics and 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 cultural writers there is kind of an assumption that what we are watching is what everyone is watching. Yes. And that is not the case. Yes. I, you know, when we were talking about, tell me about succession and Ted Lasso. When we were talking about ratings earlier, I almost walked you through my hierarchy of ratings, which again, I'm going to just keep plugging my website because I'm, you know, that guy apparently now, please do. Um, so for me, there's tons of different services that are tracking whether or not stuff is popular. Right. And I use popular meaning like lots of people are watching it. At the top for me, the most valuable is any service that is actually tracking viewership. Nielsen, those ones I listed earlier, they're actually tracking, are people actually watching these things? And they provide you one of those numbers. Below that, I have ratings, which is you know how customers actually feel about something. For that, I use IMDb. IMDb absolutely has its own biases that people point out. Um, it skews very male, it skews young, it skews very like sci-fi superhero genre, anime does very well, but it actually tends to be pretty accurate. And if there were other better sources for ratings, I would use those as well. I'm actually debating using Letterboxd. The other one then would be interest metrics. These are a way to measure, not that someone actually watched this, but were they interested in it? Google search traffic was with the first one I used. A lot of services allow you to track where shows are. Um, and like TV time, which I use every week, just watch is another one. So it's real good. So those are the three pieces of are things popular and you can use some combination of those. Actually, Wikipedia page views is very useful because it's a good sign. Is someone actually using this? Um, for theatrical films, you just had David Heron from the Quorum on. I love their stuff because they're surveying people. So are they aware of this? Really good predictive stuff. Cinema score as well. I also like them. And then I'm going to stop talking. That's all I use. You'll notice what I did not say. I did not say social media because to go back to, you know, the 1930 or 1940s when Dewey beat Truman or the 1950s, whichever one that was right. Larger sample size does not actually make it. If it's unrepresentative, the more people does not make it more representative. Social media is that in a nutshell, which is that none of the social media platforms reach everyone. The conversation on them is really geared towards people who are on social media all day, which tends to mean people who are on their computers all day, which tends to mean white collar workers and fill in the blank, right? So I tend not to use social media. Now that said, 
when it comes to the conversation, when it comes to what drives clicks on websites, in a lot of cases, you know, companies know what drives clicks on websites. And it is some of those shows like Secession, people watching recaps, or some of those buzzier shows or RRR. So if you're using that to guide what you think is going to be popular, I would absolutely say go for it. But where I try and draw the line is we should not substitute that conversation for this show is really popular because I see that all the time. Netflix just canceled this very popular show. What's wrong with Netflix? And then I look at the data. I'm like, actually, the show wasn't that popular. Like Not that many yeah. people watched it. So we shouldn't get outraged because it just wasn't that popular. Read my streaming ratings report and we'll put it into context. And if a show is, you know, very low and very expensive, um, what was, there was the uh, big comic book show Netflix had last summer, actually pretty popular, but was it popular enough to justify the budget? Probably not. Um, Prime yeah, Video. And that if, was the Mark Miller one. Yeah, the Mark Millar one. What was it? Jupiter or something. And then we're going to see I, that. I, can't remember. I think we're going to see it with Citadel coming up. I'm super eager. We know that in some cases was second only to um, the Lord of the Rings Rings of Power in terms of budget. So that's absolutely going to be a question like, is it actually popular? Now, I don't actually see a ton of conversation about it, but that doesn't mean it's not popular. Um, and examples on that would be Reacher on Prime Video last year just a huge opening no one saw coming not very talked about on social media but very very popular you know yeah yeah uh reacher is a fascinating one because i you know um it was it that that kind of came out of nowhere and that had it was it, amazon did it in the binge release model so lots of people just sat down and kind of watched it over a week or so real real good dad programming uh you know i i can't remember if it was you or somebody 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 joked that amazon has been trying to search for their brand they don't know what it is but their brand is like is dad shows it's reacher it's terminalist um you know it's it's that sort of thing that is what you know that is what is driving their their hits uh and they seem to be kind of running from it which is which is odd but neither here nor there i would more say Prime Video, I find one of the fun channels, um, especially now because I have some insight into their Amazon Freebie now with my Show Labs data. And that service does really well, but it's all ad supported. It's all these shows like Judy Justice, which again, no one yeah. talks about Judge Judy. Like there's zero conversation. But I bet if you could track everyone's dad's emails, you'd be there'd be a ton in there. You know, and that's that, or their the text, text messages. Yeah, their text messages. Yeah. The text with chain. the font like huge, right? Um, and see, I'm anonymous, <laughs> so my dad doesn't know I'm saying this, right? And he's like, they're like typing in there. I'm sure, it's huge in there. Reacher too, where they're like, oh man, did you see this Reacher guy? Oh, it's awesome. And Bosch, they like he's so. They big. all love Bosch. Um, Bosch, but yeah. the larger thing, Bosch. Yeah. Larger thing with Prime Video, I just its strategy is funny because they are still, I think, in a lot of cases, trying to be like Netflix, where they're trying to be something for everyone. I actually do think the dad lane has an opening. I would also say, and I wrote about this earlier this year, my big question, and I would still, this would be my advice for any of the streamers is to not look at who the cord cutters already are, but the next generation of cord cutters. Like if broadcast TV works because it's CSI and Chicago dramas, should you make more of those or less of those on streaming? Like what will actually entice people over and um so i always have my eye on paramount even though you know its market capitalization keeps going down but they released a seal team spinoff and then another reboot of criminal minds and those shows on some of the interest metrics stayed on the list for like weeks so something interesting yeah yeah, yeah. 
Well, that was uh, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Uh, what do you think folks should know? What I always like to close mm-hmm. these interviews by asking uh, what what people should know, what I should have asked, what I failed to. What do you think uh, people should know about what you do, the state of data, anything? I'll I'll throw a topic that maybe we can talk about if I'm fortunate enough to come back on. Um, I'll re-listen to this, see how poorly I did or or well. But um, oh, great. The topic for me which I still think like no one's working on and I don't write about enough. So like, I love to like throw shade and like, why don't we talk about this more? And people could be like, bro, are you talking about this? And that is, uh, I think piracy. That's still the one I, I know. That's one of your hobby horses as well. I would like, I could tie it to almost every issue in entertainment right now. Um, so it's like, we could almost throw out streaming and all its disruption and just say, did digital disruption, also just massively boost piracy. How many people are actually doing the pirating and how much does that actually decrease the overall take home revenue for um, all the studios? And it's like, you know, the one issue we obviously didn't bring up, we only brought up a little bit, was like the WGA strike right now. It's like, well, if all the entertainment companies were making 38 billion extra in revenue, which I've seen projections that are that are actually even higher than that, if they're making 30 extra billion, would that be a bunch more shows they can make or could they, you know, choose to spread that around and keep shareholders happy or offer lower prices to customers and piracy is the one issue. Like I'll just keep bringing up because in some cases it seems like insane to me that, you know, Reddit or the latest one I saw is that whole copies of Mario were showing up on Twitter. Right. That seems insane to me that that's like legal and allowed, and I understand if you overcorrect, you could have copyright notices going around everywhere. Yeah. But right now, it seems like everyone's like, well, who cares because we're making money off it. So piracy is the one that I think impacts all of this. If you had less piracy, would the home entertainment market be a little bit stronger? That is very high revenue streams for the studio. So then would you get more of those movies because they'd be able to support theatrical runs? So piracy, that's the uh, that's the one for me. Yeah. Uh, and we will, uh, that is, as you said, as you mentioned, another of my hobby horses yeah. that I will happily ride. Uh, but, uh, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, uh, Mr. Strategy guy for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, and again, that's entertainment.substack.com. I'll link to it in the newsletter with this, uh, with this post, uh, everybody send, sign up for his newsletter, um, pay him money to write because that, if you don't, if you don't pay for the things you like, they go away. See also piracy. Um, all right. Uh, that is it for this week's show. Uh, thank you for listening. I will be back next week with another episode. Uh, we'll see you then. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.